This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone. My name is Anne-Marie Charlesworth, and I am the director of the UCSF Earth Center Community Engagement Corps. I and my co-chairs, Patrice Sutton, Robert Gould, and Nadia Gaber, would like to welcome you to Environmental Justice and Human Health, Creating Systemic Solutions, a six-week mini medical school series co-organized by the UCSF Earth Center, UCSF Program for Reproductive Health and the Environment, and San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibility, and further supported by the UCSF Center for Climate Health and Equity and the Environmental and Climate Health Student Advisory Group. Tonight's session, a call to action, transforming community academic partnerships to secure environmental justice for all is the final session in our series. Tonight's session will reflect on a long history of contamination in the Bayview Hunters Point community, the health harms disproportionately suffered by community members, and the challenges and opportunities for collaboration between community members, academic scientists, and health professionals to address these environmental injustices. We will then explore successes and lessons learned from Flint, Michigan in mobilizing citizens to advocate for policy changes. Now, I'd like to introduce you to Nadia Gaber, our moderator for tonight's session. Nadia is a postdoctoral fellow here in the Program on Reproductive Health and the Environment, studying the influence of the chemical industry on the science and regulation of toxic chemicals. She received her PhD in medical anthropology from the UCSF and Berkeley Joint Program and is obtaining her MD at UCF, UCSF with support from the NIH Medical Scientist Training Program. Her dissertation research in Detroit and Flint looked at the politics of urban health and safety in the U.S. through the lens of water. She is continuing to develop that research in a book project called Life After Water, that blends ethnography, grassroots epidemiology, and critical race theory. Alongside her scholarship and activism, she is a dog lover, feminist DIYer, former soccer player, and wannabe urban gardener. Thank you, Nadia. Thanks for that, Emory. Thank you all for joining us. This is the last session in our series. And when um, we co-organizers um, were talking about this series and designing we really wanted to um, kind of showcase this panel um, because in a way it's our most important um, event of the series because we're going to be talking about um, building strong research partnerships with communities who are directly infected by environmental injustices, um, some of the history um, of those types of um, community-based participatory research and some best practices um, for redressing a lot of the power imbalances that have been baked into how um, academic and community partnerships have been built. Um, so we'll discuss um, the legacy of research in communities, um, sometimes on communities, and think together about how to better build these partnerships with communities. Um, and I just want to say, um, you know, I talked in the last session that I moderated on health politics about, um, you know, why um, community-based participatory research and community-led research has become really important to me as a medical student and an anthropologist working on environmental justice issues. 
But it's also um, becomes personal because community engagement is relationship building. And so our panelists tonight are people um, that I have been in conversation with and building relationships for longer and short, shorter amounts of time, both here in um, the Bay Area where I live and in Detroit, which is sort of my adopted home where I've done my research and worked um, for many years um, on water and environmental justice. And um, it's really also where um, I learned uh, what good partnerships look like and um, what it feels like to um, pursue and stay in the fight um, for environmental justice. So I'm really honored um, that we have um, Daniel Hirsch, Kim Rhodes, and Michelle Pierce here um, who are in California and work in the Baby Hunters Point community and also um, a friend and mentor um, and uh, almost mother of mine, Monica Lewis-Patrick, who's joining us from Michigan um, as late as it is. I won't um, talk too much um, because I, our presenters have um, much more insight and experience, but I did just want to start with this quote um, from an anthropologist um, and novelist, Zora Neale Hurston, who said, research is formalized curiosity. It is poking and prying with a purpose. And it's that purpose that I think sometimes gets lost in, um, you know, the metrics generating and all of the pressures of peer review and advancement and career um, that I know are present on the academic side and also a funding and grant writing and organizing um, and petition writing that are present um, in the advocacy side. And so when we think about a shared purpose, um, you know, that's really the point of having this session is what kind of shared purpose can we bring um, from academia into communities and vice versa? How can we best use our scholarship, our tools um, in order to design and conduct research that engages community members, um, that responds to their um, to their needs, to their questions and that serves their interests? Um, so. Without further ado, I think I will um, begin by introducing our first panelist. Um, so um, Dr. Daniel Hirsch um, retired in 2017 as director of the Program on Environmental and Nuclear Policy at the University of California in Santa Cruz, where he taught for many years um, and before that at UCLA. He is president of the Committee to Bridge the Gap, a nuclear policy NGO, which he founded nearly half a century ago um, and joins us um, as as um, an expert on radionuclear contamination and um, the public health um, research and politics of um, addressing that environmental injustice in the Baby Hunters Point. So Dr. Hirsch, um, if you are able to turn your camera on and your microphone, um, I will turn it over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm gonna to try to talk to you about the environmental justice in the Bay Area as a case study for um, how people who have technical skills have a moral obligation to try to apply those to help redress the um, imbalance in power and how that imbalance in power ends up affecting the health of already badly impacted people. So this is a photograph of a nuclear weapons test in the Pacific in July of 1946. <clears throat> you can see the ships in the foreground. Purpose of the test supposedly was to see what the effects were of nuclear weapons on naval vessels. So what we're gonna be talking about is something that began 75 years ago and continues to this day. Um, on July 16th, 1945, 
The USS Indianapolis departed Hunters Point Naval Shipyard carrying components of a bomb codenamed Little Boy, including half of the highly enriched uranium then in existence in the world. The ship was headed to Tinian Island in the Pacific. On August 6th, the Enola Gay left Tinian and dropped the assembled atomic bomb on Hiroshima. A year later, for the Operation Crossroads atomic tests, the tests went badly awry and contaminated hundreds of ships. You can see the two men up here in the wreckage of uh, the independence. This is what the inside of the Nagasaki bomb looked like. So you all know that when a bomb goes off, it releases unfissioned plutonium and uranium, scores of fission products and activation products from neutron irradiation and materials like sand and sediment. So an immense amount of radioactivity as well as the um, explosive blast. The ships got badly contaminated and the Navy in its wisdom decided to try to decontaminate these with sailors in uh, shirt sleeves and brooms and uh, soap and water. And it did not work. At the same time, it exposed those workers and many of them ended up uh, with serious health problems in the years to come. So what the Navy decided to do was to bring many of these contaminated ships back to Hunter's Point Naval Shipyard and decontaminate them there. Now this was then, as it is now, a low-income community of color. And decontamination is physically impossible. What you are doing merely is moving the contamination from the ships to the Bayview Hunter's Point area, contaminating it making it into what decades later was designated a Superfund site, one of the most contaminated sites in the nation. Ships would come in and people with sandblasting would simply sandblast the contamination off of the ship, spreading it throughout Hunters Point. In addition to the decontamination of the ships, they established the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory and they did extensive research with really huge quantities of radionuclides. Um, here's just an example, 60,000 curies of strontium-90, 15,000 curies of cobalt-60, 2,400 pounds of depleted uranium, 2,000 grams of plutonium-239, one of the most dangerous substances on Earth, a millionth of an ounce if inhaled will cause lung cancer with a virtual statistical 100% certainty. Um, the 60,000 curies of strontium-90 could contaminate more than 10 trillion tons of soil at EPA's default Superfund remediation goal. The depleted uranium could contaminate more than 200 million metric tons. So these were really huge amounts of radioactivity. And um, they were very badly handled. The materials uh, were spread throughout the site and transferred off-site. In 1989, it was placed in the national priority list, the Superfund list, but the cleanup thereafter has been a scandal. This is a letter from EPA to the Navy that I had a hand in getting released to the public because the EPA, in its wisdom, had kept it secret. I've never read in half a century of this work a letter like this in the tables that were included. EPA, the Toxics Agency, and the California Department of Public Health found signs of potential falsification. This has to do with the measurements that were made at the site to determine what would get cleaned up and what wouldn't. 
They find signs of potential falsification, data manipulation, and or data quality concerns that call into question the reliability of soil data in an additional 76% of survey units to the ones the Navy had identified, bringing to 90% the total suspect survey units in Parcel B. And for uh, Parcel G, 97% of the survey units were sus suspect of falsification, data manipulation, fabrication. Here are a couple tables. All of you are used to tables, but numbers just sometimes cause one's jaw to drop. They found only 3% of these um, data to be having no signs of falsification. They recommended resampling of 97%. For this parcel, they found only 10% had no signs of falsification, 90% did. And again, for these parcels, 3% had no signs of falsification. How could we spend $300 million taxpayer money to try to find radioactive contamination that needs to get cleaned up uh, in the midst of a uh, environmental justice community, community of color, um, and fabricate 90 to 97% of the measurements. It gets worse. We discovered that 90% of Hunters Point sites were never sampled in the first place. So the falsification occurred only in the small fraction that were sampled. Of uh, the sites at Hunters Point, 792 out of 883 were exempted from sampling. And here, the radionuclides of concern at Hunters Point, admitted by the Navy, but of these several dozen, the, they only monitored for three or four radionuclides. And they set remediation goals, as you'll see in a moment. Remediation goals that came, when you look at the footnotes, to, from an Atomic Energy Commission regulatory guide from 1974. The AC doesn't even exist anymore. And uh, EPA standards from 1991. These are the standards that they're currently using today for the cleanup of Hunter's Point, grossly outdated and grossly non-protective. And the way we found that is here's buried in the Navy table with the footnotes where the source is. The community needs somebody who have people who have technical background and a sense of conscience to be able to read the footnotes and be able to explain that these numbers for cleanup are astronomically weak. We just compared, for example, the uh, Navy's cleanup values with the EPA's default preliminary remediation goals and found that the Navy standards were sometimes hundreds of times weaker, almost a thousand times weaker than the EPA standards, which they're required by law to uh, use as their uh, starting point for cleanup. Now they're retesting the site, but many of the problems in the original fabrication by the contractor for the Navy Tetratech are being repeated in the retesting plans. And that's because the fundamental problem remains. It is far cheaper for the Navy to be able to get measurements made that say you don't have to clean something up than it costs to actually clean it up. So for example, they're inflating the background to determine what you have to clean up, you have to know what would have been there before the uh, Navy started contaminating it. But the Navy is going out of its way to inflate the background value so it ends up reducing dramatically the amount it has to clean up. Here's a little map of Hunter's Point and it shows you four of the background locations. You never take your background measurements in the middle of a contaminated Superfund site. It's the fundamental principle of science. The control has to be 
free of the phenomenon that you were examining. So here, right next to where the sandblasting occurred, they, you had one of their background locations. Now, the cleanup was supposed to clean up at least what they found that was in excess of their inflated cleanup levels. But instead, they have decided to leave the contamination in place simply beneath a thin soil or asphalt cover. They're covering up the contamination rather than cleaning it up. But the th problem is that this is to be the most massive redevelopment in San Francisco history since the earthquake in the early part of the last century. The Lennar Corporation, the largest developer in the United States, is to redevelop it. Tremendous amounts of money are at stake. And to do that redevelopment, they'll have to tear up the thin asphalt and soil covers and dig up the contaminated soil beneath them. This violates um, the community acceptance criterion of Superfund and an actual vote of the people of San Francisco that the site be cleaned up to the most protective standards. I'm going to shift for one moment, if you will permit me, to a different set of slides to try to conclude what this all means. And the fundamental message is to remember the golden rule. Now, you all remember the golden rule, right? Remember the golden rule, the king says? We must all live by the golden rule. What the heck is the golden rule, says the uh, peasant to the other peasant. And the answer is, whoever has the gold makes the rules. That indeed is what these environmental justice struggles are about, that we do not follow the true golden rule of treating our neighbor as we wish to be treated ourselves. But instead, decisions are made by those who have the money and the power. And the people who don't have money and don't have power pay for it. Economists talk about this in terms of externalities, transferring the cost of doing business onto others, because it's often cheaper for corporations and the Navy and other big entities to pollute because they're allowed to externalize environmental and social costs. Rather than pay to prevent pollution or to clean it up, they transfer the cost to innocent others in the form of health impacts. This is a close friend of mine, Grace, who has gone through two bouts of childhood leukemia. She lives near another contaminated site that I've spent 40 years trying to get cleaned up. She, at least after her second bout of cancer, is cancer-free. But this is Hazel. And Hazel, um, three years ago, passed away. She and Grace both lived near this contaminated site where the powerful entities have found that it was cheaper for them to simply continue to let the contamination get off-site into innocent children than it was to live up to their obligations to clean things up. So in closing, I just want to remind people that these environmental justice fights are not complicated matters of tables and picocuries and where the background measurements should be made. In the end, they're a fundamental choice between which golden rule we're going to live by, the golden rule that those who have the gold make the rules, or the golden rule that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we do the latter, we have to provide every bit of energy and technical ability and compassion we have to fighting on behalf of these environmentally uh, injustice communities. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. I 
Um, I think that was such a um, fantastic introduction um, to the stakes, but also to the issues and the importance of um, research, you know, the first principles of why we do this research. And I'm so glad I got to turn it to you first because um, getting nervous, I couldn't have done a better explanation of um, the legacy contamination that's in the Baby Hunters Point neighborhood. But next, um, we'll shift to hear from Dr. Um, Kim Rhodes, who is Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics um, here at UCSF, as well as Director of the Office of Community Engagement at the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center. She is a colorectal surgeon who treats cancer, as well as a basic sciences and health services researcher who studies cancer development at the molecular level and cancer disparities at the population level. In addition to um, her medical and public health training, she was a California Endowment Scholar in Health Policy at Harvard and the inaugural UCSF Philip R. Lee Fellow in Health Policy here. Um, she also put that expertise um, in community engagement into practice over the course of the pandemic. And I just wanna acknowledge that work um, that Dr. Rose has led in mobilizing um, doctors, physicians, nurses, um, public health professionals to bring testing sites and information into the Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood, um, utilizing a community-based model to build trust and bring accurate information um, to particularly the black community. And those pop-ups have grown into several sites serving San Francisco and Oakland, um, really targeting or serving the people who have been disproportionately exposed to COVID and disproportionately affected by it with a keen eye to the importance of trust um, to the delivery of effective and equitable healthcare. Um, so it's a pleasure and an honor to have Dr. Rhodes with us. Um, and without further ado, uh, I will turn over the microphone. Thank you for that introduction, Nadia. So I'm gonna talk about some of the challenges of um, really doing deeply invested and engaged community partnership work um, for the purposes of research, but really for the end goal and uh, ultimate holy grail of transformational change. So first I just wanna point out and, and thank Dan for really laying that uh, groundwork and the history of what has happened in Bayview Hunters Point. But I like to start off just by making note of how current some of the um, untrustworthy behavior um, by various institutions and by uh, federal agencies has been. And I think Dan really um, gave you kind of the hard evidence of that in terms of falsification of data in the testing of soil samples, uh, as well as uh, the failure of um, monitoring, for example, air quality. And these, uh, these stories are not old. They're not from yesteryear, they're from last year, they're from the year before that. Um, they are recent memory for the people who live in this area. And so I'd just like to start by saying that, you know, a word on community engagement and trust is that if institutional behavior is untrustworthy, then a lack of trust by communities who are affected by this should really be no surprise. And in fact, it's quite a rational response. Um, and I just also wanna put a plug in for the concept that uh, trust builds at the pace of the relationship. And so if you want to ask uh, whether or not a community has trust in a particular institution, you need only look to whether or not there's a relationship. If there is no relationship, then there will be no trust. And if there are behaviors that are untrustworthy and actions that have been perpetrated against the community, then you can expect that there will be 
uh, less than no trust, and you'll be in the negative range um, of, of true mistrust, distrust. So just to situate um, myself, you heard in my introduction, uh, I do serve as the Associate Director for Community Engagement uh, at the UCSF Cancer Center. Um, and through that work, um, I get to engage with community partners all across the Bay Area because we do serve quite a large catchment area from the southern border of Monterey County all the way up to uh, the Oregon border. Our community advisory board was started before having a cab was popular. Um, and that's all credit to Dr. Rena Pasek, my predecessor, um, and Dr. Bob Hyatt who introduced and developed and sustained the community advisory board for the Cancer Center um, 15 years ago. So in this role, the, um, I serve at the, at the pleasure of the director of the Cancer Center, Dr. Alan Ashworth, um, and I have a very specific mandate that is uh, outlined by the National Cancer Institute. And what's interesting about it is that there is an obligation for every cancer center that calls itself comprehensive to define its catchment area, which is shown here um, in the map on the left, surrounded by the red box. You can see that the northern 48 counties is, is what we cover and where we serve with the idea that our patient population, uh, up to 90% of the, the cancer diagnoses that we take care of, uh, come from this set of 48 counties. The mandate from the National Cancer Institute is outlined here in this little graphic, which suggests that first you define your catchment area, then you do research to address the needs of the catchment area, then you engage the population, address disparities, drive policy, and then extend what you're doing beyond the reach of your catchment area. And for me, it's kind of interesting because the NCI, as you uh, may be aware, funds most of the... Uh, large-scale research that we do in academic institutions. And what I spotted right away when I saw this little diagram of the, the six steps of uh, serving the community outreach and engagement component in a comprehensive cancer center was the disorder of um, number two and number three. For me, engaging the population is the first thing you do because our mandate is to make sure that the research across the center addresses the needs of the catchment area and the burden of cancer in the catchment area. So engaging the population first and then developing research to address the needs of the catchment area seems to make more sense. I've been pushing back on this, um, this uh, paradigm since into this position in 2018. And interestingly enough, in the most recent a call for proposals for comprehensive cancer centers, they have switched the order um, of these two items that they expect all cancer centers to execute. So um, I get the pleasure in working with the cab who I, I carry behind me um, often on my screensaver as supports um, and as a reminder of what I'm supposed to be doing and how I'm supposed to be focused um, on how we do community engagement. Um, I probably, I, I sort of uh, laugh at myself that I think I take this more seriously than most people. I'm completely committed to the, uh, to the opportunity that I've been given to make sure that, um, that what we do in our cancer center is really grounded in something that's going to get us to impact rather than just getting us to impact factors and great publications. 
So I've had the great pleasure to work with uh, Arnold Perkins, who we refer to in the community as Baba, Baba Arnold Perkins. And that means father, and it's a, just a, a word of respect. Um, and he has been the chair of our community advisory board um, for the last 13 years, and he's been on the community advisory board since its inception. He's the former head of the public health department in Alameda County. Uh, he ran the Koshlin Fund for quite some time. He's just a pretty well-known guy and very much a sage and someone I look to um, and get out a piece of paper whenever he talks in any meetings we're in to write down his words of wisdom. And so those words are going to guide what I'm going to talk about today and how we do community engagement uh, in our cancer center. And one of the first things that he said that really captured my attention was this idea that you can't teach what you don't know and you can't lead where you won't go. And so that fuels how we do community engagement in our cancer center. So um, to pivot to uh, the relationship that we have with the Bayview Hunters Point uh, Community Advocates and the Southeast Community Council, Arnold saying really fueled uh, my desire to attend the meeting of the Southeast Community Council when it kicked off in July of 2019. I remember seeing the invitation. It had a number of big names of the leadership in our uh, school of medicine um, and parts of our cancer center. And I thought to myself, I'm going to go to this kickoff because I want to see who's going to show up. Because as Arnold says, you can't teach what you don't know and you can't lead where you won't go. The map on the right is showing you that the cancer center in its new Mission Bay location is fewer than five miles away from Bayview Hunters Point. So it didn't take long for me to jump in my car and drive down Third Street to um, to get to the uh, inaugural get together, which uh, included community leaders, um, environmental health and justice advocates, um, some uh, medical scientists, and there were a few people from UCSF. I was happy to see that. But from the leadership, I didn't see a lot of folks there. And so I started talking to people actually about um, some of the programming that we have around cancer and eliminating disparities. And what I realized was that folks even uh, fewer than five miles away from our campus were unaware of what we were doing. And it just pointed out to me that it meant that we were not deeply embedded enough in the community. We weren't visible enough. We weren't um, going to the places that we would hope to lead. Um, so in talking to folks, I started to really get engaged with ongoing concerns about environmental exposures uh, and cancer based on what you've already heard about the history of the geographic location. Another saying that Arnold um, uh, inspires me with is, if you wanna have something you've never had before, you have to do something that you've never done before. And this seems really obvious um, and simple, but I think it's, a, it's sort of a hard thing to live by. It's so much easier to get stuck in the status quo and keep doing the same things over and over again. But effectively what he is suggesting is that what we've been doing over and over again isn't working. And when you look at cancer disparities over time, what you'll notice is that even though we do tons and tons of outreach and we try to educate people, um, we're not actually making progress. And in some cases, some disparities gaps are actually getting wider. So this leads me to, to really feel like we need to do something different. We need to shift our approach. We need to shift our thinking. Um, and part of that, again, fuels how we do community engagement work. So I want to I want to just um, share this table with you that contrasts kind of the research agenda or the academic agenda 
and compare that to the community agenda. Because the research agenda or the academic agenda is sort of how we have come to where we are, where we have falsification of data instead of a plan for cleanup, um, where we have widening disparities gaps instead of narrowing disparities gaps, despite what the NCI has told us that we need to do as a cancer center. So this table kind of outlines what I call technical approaches. You could think of that as like checking off a box, um, doing the status quo versus transformational approaches. And I put the community agenda on the transformational approach side because I want to really point out that I think that our research agenda diverges from the community agenda, which can, number one, generate more um, uh, mistrust or a sense of mistreatment but it also uh, keeps us kind of stuck in the same things that we keep studying and pointing to and there are disparities and over and over again. So first, um, the, 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 the uh, divergence happens across this of research from research leadership to how we collect data and what data we collect um, and to who owns the data and how we even share the results. So on research leadership, the transformational approach would be to have the community serving as co-principal investigators or co-investigators um, to involve um, stakeholders across all age groups because different age groups are impacted differently. Um, and instead, what we do is we come in and we're leading the research, already set the agenda when we, when we arrive. Um, and sometimes maybe if you're lucky, we're willing to hear actually what the community really thinks is going on, what their hypotheses are. Um, and if they're lucky, we will incorporate some of that into the actual work that gets done. But the transformational approach would actually have the community set the agenda, tell us what the questions are, tell us what the local ground truth is about what they think the effectors are of, of that problem, and then actually take our, uh, our research tools and look into those questions. Um, in terms of assessing health outcomes, this is, you know, something that is really challenging in looking at environmental science and the links between cancer and other uh, health outcomes. We tend to look at sort of cross-sectional data. What was happening last week and how does that predict what's uh, going on now? Instead, what we should be looking at and thinking about is what is the real life experience of the people who live in this area? They're there every day. They've been there for generations. Houses are being passed down from family to family. So if you want to study exposures, um, and this is something that I, I find that the community sort of complains about, is that they've been told off the bat, there's no link between any cancers that have developed here and any exposures. But the problem is, how do you measure those exposures? It's really difficult. What is the timing? What is the length of time of those exposures? And so instead of taking a cross-sectional approach, we really need to take a longitudinal approach. We need to think about, um, as mentioned, as pointed out in the data collection tools area, thinking about ethnography and storytelling and oral tradition and recounting of exposures and the ground truth, again, of what the community knows uh, was contaminated and found in their neighborhood that you can no longer find any records of because it's either been falsified or covered up or denied um, by forces larger than the community. The other thing that is uh, that can engender some, some areas of friction and distrust is that in the traditional model and the technical approach, the university and the academicians and the researchers own the data. 
The data not only is owned by the university, but under the guise of talking about how we need to protect it and keep it safe, we actually extract it from communities and then hide it from communities. And then we keep it um, close to the chest and embargoed until we can publish a paper. In the, tr the transformational approach, the community really should own the data, belongs to them. For example, when we talk about um, biospecimens and sharing tissue, why is it that if we take a tissue sample, it now belongs to the university instead of continuing to belong to the person who tissue and who is allowing their, their own physical selves to contribute to the advancement of the science? It's quite alienating. And uh, I think the, the, the word that captures this really is extractive. Why are we taking from the community in order to learn more you know, for our own benefit? We should be sharing that back um, and not only sharing it back, but we should be having these discussions before we actually um, embark on these research activities to have some understanding of how people can continue to own what is truly and literally theirs. And then in terms of sustainability, um, sustainability in the technical approach is uh, a five-year period. So what happens is you get funded. It's typically the grant is five years long. Um, once the grant is over, if you're lucky enough to get funded again for that same topic matter, if NIH hasn't changed its mind about what it's interested in, for example, um, then you can continue on for another 10 years. But after that, if you're not funded, then the study ends, the inquiry ends, and actually the engagement ends. What we should be doing in the transformational approach is um, developing an, an institutional relationship. So even though the study itself is over, the learnings from the study get embedded into the institution, whether that's into our medical school curriculum or into training uh, of, of providers inside our system, um, inviting community partners that we have then developed this relationship with to embed inside of our institutions um, as, as community um, instructors, because clearly they have something to offer that, that we're not bringing to the table. And that should be embedded. And that's the way to actually make the relationship sustainable and to start to have a sustainable relationship that is compatible with um, the agenda of the academic institution that is focused so heavily on research. So um, these last slides are just some recommendations for how we can transform our institutions to at least come to the, to the middle and meet communities in the middle uh, to get to, to social justice. Because if we keep going with the technical approach, we're gonna end up with the same things that we're seeing now. Not just disparities, but structural, uh, structural inequities. So lack of access to various types of resources, which trickle down into disparities in health and health outcomes. In order to do this, academic institutions need to, to take some actions. And I'm just gonna outline a couple of those. First, we need to get to some level of transparency in terms of um, uh, having that guide our ability to reduce cover-ups, admit mistakes, um, and provide background when there is a mistake. Well, here's what we did, here's where it went wrong, this is why we're getting the result we're getting. In order to do that, we need to deconstruct concepts of academic supremacy and the meaning and importance of failure. We are not, as, as doctors, we are trained that we should not be making mistakes. And when you make a mistake, um, people are looking, and this is coming from a surgical culture, so I just want to contextually situate myself, um, looking to blame someone rather than asking, what can we learn about our systems of care that facilitated that error or mistake? 
So we need some humility there. And then the other thing is that we need to actually just accept research, uh, the research results when we find them. If they don't agree with our political leanings or our political interests or doesn't support, for example, the development of Bayview Hunters Point into lovely condos with a wonderful Bayview, um, we need to really actually deal with that. Because if we don't, what's going to happen is those condos are going to go up. And if um, the exposures are truly driving health disparities. We're going to see those same health disparities recurring in Baby Hunters Point, regardless of who's living in those condos and who has made money off of that development. We need some translation and we need to promote uh, uh, translation across disciplines, both inside and outside of the institution. I like to say the reason that we have silos um, is because people don't want to come outside. It's okay to be a specialist in the area where you specialize, but what's important is to come to the community square and share that knowledge to enhance the, the, um, the depth uh, and breadth of the research and the questions that we can answer together. We need to build teams that link um, from the institution to the community and back, and that's how we see our CAB. They are at the center of everything. So if we need to reach a particular community, we go to the CAB and we ask who are the right people in these, com these other communities outside of our institution and how do we reach them? So we use them as a nucleus um, or a hub, and then we start to create spokes of a network. So what can academic institutions do? Well, first, we can start to develop and apply metrics for promotion that reward collaboration and community engagement. It's really hard to get promoted for what I do in the Cancer Center. And so I've sort of just eschewed the whole thing. Um, I'm happy to write papers uh, and kind of play the academic game to some extent, but I'm more invested in impact, in real life impact. Because, you know, we publish papers, but sometimes people don't read them. And in fact, the community is absolutely not reading them, even when they're written supposedly to ben for the benefit or to benefit the community. So we need people who can actually translate those findings back to the community and make sure that the, that information, if we're doing it on our own and haven't done it in a community engaged way, that that information reaches the community. Otherwise, um, it's not knowledge, it's just information. It's not intelligence because we're not applying um, what we think we know. And then we need to commit to long-term relationships and collective impact. And that means we need to look for win-win situations and we need to look for um, mutually beneficial uh, activities and not simply activities that will benefit the investigator because they get to publish a paper and they've got a great finding that's about the community that the community will never read because we hold it in the, in the uh, PubMed library where the community is not really looking for that kind of information. Um, and then again, we need to reward social, the academic institutions need to reward social impact, actual real world change. Where do we see a change in outcome? That's not about a paper, but what's rewarded currently is a, a publication in a high level journal. We really should and need to create rewards for folks who are moving an agenda for transformational change. Finally, Arnold reminds us that everyone is a piece of the puzzle and that every piece is important. Imagine a gigantic 5,000 piece puzzle and you drop one piece on the floor while you start the puzzle. You're like, eh, you know, you're not missing that piece. But once you get to piece 4,999 and that one piece is missing, it's a huge disappointment to see that hole in your puzzle. And I think that we need to really start to think about the community in similar ways. So we need transformation. We need to be doing, we need to reach out rather than doing outreach. And I could do a whole dissertation on this. I just want everybody to think about who are the communities or people that you reach out to 
versus who do you do outreach to? And if those two populations are different, you really need to think about why that is, because it suggests that you don't think that the folks you're uh, doing outreach to are particularly important equally important to you or have anything to offer to you in the exchange that you would have in relationship. Um, we also need to transform our uh, complete approach about who is leading the research. The community can ask questions and lead us to answers that we will never be aware of because we're not living in that environment. And so as a drummer, as a musical drummer, and I do play a drum kit with floor toms and, and uh, hi-hats, um, I know that my job in, in playing the music is to keep the beat going. It's not my job to do the solo. It's not my job to sing. It's not my job to, um, to make the melody. That is the job of the community. My job is to bring the resources that I have to make sure that things can continue to go forward. And the academic institution has the resources. We need to step back and let community lead. And in order to do that, we need to embrace and embed humility within medical education. What we're taught in medicine is you are the doctor, you are never the patient, the patient is other, you will never be other, right? And what does that engender? It, it engenders a fear of failure um, and it engenders a separation between doctor and patient. In research, we do the same thing. Well, that's the community, I'm not the community, you all are the community. Um, and that separation creates this power dynamic that actually blocks the exchange of information. You're into a unidirectional outreach kind of situation where you have everything, the poor community has nothing, um, and you are therefore closed to the possibility that you could learn something actually by opening yourself and recognizing that there are ways uh, in which you are um, uh, not the expert. So that also calls for transitioning deficit thinking um, to identifying assets. And I just wanna give the example of when we started doing the COVID-19 testing and we provided wraparound services for those who tested positive. Um, part of what we did for, for the wraparound services is we did food delivery and, um, and PPE, you know, personal protective equipment and groceries and just tried to support people to be able to stay home. And what I recognized immediately is that the community already knew how to deliver groceries. They have been doing it since the beginning of the pandemic. And to think about, okay, now UCSF is going to deliver groceries. How are we going to do this? It's not going to be efficient because that's not what we do. And so to recognize what's already being done and enhance that makes us much more efficient and really starts to elevate the fact that the community has assets to bring to the table that we will never, ever, ever have. And then finally, um, I want to advocate for the creation of and support of institutional rather than individual academic community partnerships. We rely too much on an individual investigator going to partner. That individual investigator is usually really nice, really cares about the community, but the realities of the NIH funding stream and how you get promoted means your five years are over, then you're leaving. The community sees that as being abandoned. Um, and so what I want to encourage folks to think about is this concept we use in our uh, first pillar of community engagement in the Cancer Center, which is year-round, non-transactional community engagement. What that means is our office is here for you, regardless of whether there's a study to enroll in, um, regardless of whether there's a clinical trial where we want some specimens, or regardless of whether there's a paper to be written at the end of our interaction. We are here for you year-round. And what that allows and tries to facilitate is the divergence of the two agendas. So that allows in individual investigators to dip in and out of the community. 
without the community looking and saying, oh, that person's gone. That person's not the institution. The institution is the institution and should not be hiding behind individual investigators, but should instead invest in the community and stay present in the community, regardless of whether or not we're going to get some named benefit out of that relationship. So that's all I have. And thank you very much for inviting me to uh, speak on this panel. Wow, that was incredible. Thank you so much. Um, I think this should just be required reading or required listening for um, everyone who wants to do community-based um, research. And uh, certainly in the medical school, I think what you said about humility um, and this transformative approach is absolutely crucial and not something um, that I was formally taught. So thank you. Um, so next, um, we will move to a presentation um, from Michelle Pierce, um, who is executive director of the Bayview Hunters Point Community Advocates, which works to improve the quality of life of residents of the neighborhood through advocacy, information, uh, community organizing, education, and economic development. Um, with Dr. Rhodes, um, she helped to build those COVID clinics in real time as the pandemic ripped through San Francisco um, and also um, serves on the community advisory board of UCSF's New Earth Center. She has more than 20 years of experience working in sustainability and social justice. Um, the advocates, along with the Democratic Socialists of America, have been collecting documents related to the contamination and the redevelopment struggles um, in the Bay Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood for decades, and recently donated them to the UCSF Chemical Industry Documents Library, which is um, another model for community archiving that reflects how much work has to be done on the ground to resist a lack of transparency um, and also provide opportunities for building collective and public knowledge. Um, Michelle formerly worked with the San Francisco Department of the Environment, where she helped small to medium-sized businesses design sustainability and responsibility programs while maintaining or improving their business viability. And those programs span from water use reduction, water quality improvement, energy efficiency improvement, and um, toxic waste reduction. She honed that expertise in culturally competent policy design and economically empowering sustainability in the Global Partners MBA program. Um, and it is a pleasure and honor to have you with us. Um, I will be running your slides. So um, let me just pull those up and, but I'll hand the microphone to you. Thank you very much, Nadia. I actually want to meet me now. That was great. I didn't know those things about myself. Um, good evening, everybody. And thank you for joining us. Uh, it is my honor to be presenting to you. So thank you and come along with me in presenting the challenges from the front line in attempting to build out collaborations between EJ communities and academia. Thank you. Next slide, Nadia. So as Kim alluded, um, and you're going to recognize a lot of these slides, or at least this one in the final one, I think, um, as Kim alluded, there is not a great history um, between our community and communities such as ours and the academic institutions as well as government institutions and corporate institutions of this country. It has been very exploitative um, and Kim is correct, extractive 
our communities don't trust outsiders. We're very insular because this is how we have developed resiliency. And this is how we have managed to survive in very trying conditions. So that being the case, why bother collaborating anyway? I'm going to go back through the history of the Hunter's Point shipyard from the community perspective, as opposed to the academic perspective, which Dan so beautifully illustrated. And this story for us starts back in the 70s when the Navy announced that they were going to shut down the Hunter's Point shipyard. And our then president of the Board of Supervisors, uh, Madam Diane Feinstein, who is now Senior Senator Diane Feinstein, at that point as the Board of Supervisors president, was interested in developing the site. And those of us in community were saying, wait, 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 there's a whole bunch of nuclear waste at that site. You can't just throw up an amusement park and some fancy condos and call it livable. And the response from the city and the Navy outright was that absolutely no nuclear activity took place at this site. They downplayed the work that was there. They claimed once they realized that there was activity there, that the activity was limited to receiving contaminated ships. Once it was proven that that was not true and that there was actually a laboratory at this site, they claimed that the only thing they did at that laboratory was to sandblast the ships. And that's what this image is. This is an image of actually, and this is a deceptive image of a naval seaman sandblasting the side of the ship in an attempt to decontaminate it. For the most part, the people who worked on these ships when they were decontaminating did not get hazmat suits. Nobody knew. You know, if, if I am going to be as fair as I would like the Navy to be and the city of San Francisco to be on this topic, I have to admit that we were the National Radiological Laboratory for the United States of America back when we barely figured out how to split the atom. Nobody was aware that you could not decontaminate this stuff. Nobody was aware that some of this stuff had half-lives of 100,000 years or 300,000 years. So... Yes, we had pictures such as these. We had employment records. We had, as Kim alluded to, our histories and our family's histories. And people were showing up and testifying and saying, no, there was a laboratory there. They did human tests. They did animal tests. We buried some of the animal carcasses out there. We dumped uh, the waste directly into the ground because we did not know that it was toxic waste or radiative waste. All of those things were true. We were showing up and making those arguments. And basically the Navy's response in defense to the city and the federal government was that the community lacked scientific sophistication. And because the community lacked scientific sophistication, they didn't know what they were talking about. 
I do want to add in here that they seriously underestimated the community they were talking to. They assumed because we were brown and black people, this is the historically black and Chinese neighborhood for San Francisco because we were redlined into this area. It was also Italian and Maltese. Um, they assumed because of that, that we were uneducated, but because we were redlined, you had a lot of people who had advanced degrees. They were not STEM degrees necessarily, but we had a lot of attorneys. We had corporate vice presidents. We had the kind of people who, in order to get where they were, had learned how to do extensive research. The response to dealing with those people who were not going away and knew how to talk some talk was for the government and the developers to flood these communities, our communities, with overly technical documents that didn't really make sense to scientists or anybody else. Uh, they had more fine print and data sheets than they had information. But these, again, like I said, were people who were used to doing research to figure out what was going on. And they went and they figured it out. What they also figured out because their expertise were in areas such as um, law, corporate executive and C-suites, government aides and government departments, what, what, what clearly quickly became apparent was that there are extreme pressures, even back in the 70s and 80s, in terms of housing. And it was critical to the city to develop new housing. This is one of the few neighborhoods that they assumed did not have the political clout or the ability to organize to fight. And so this neighborhood 40 years ago and, and still up until this day was designated as a redevelopment site that they're trying to develop. It's very difficult because we do have extreme housing needs. We have a market that is overly expensive. There has been over a billion dollars invested in just the cleanup alone. On top of all of the trenches that have been sold for the development and sale of the actual properties, the luxury housing, the luxury condos, the retail spaces that they are developing at this site, there's a lot of money already invested in this. I don't have an exact figure, but we're pushing trillions now. So our early collaborations did not necessarily involve this shipyard. Our early academic collaborations um, involved us working with University of California at Hastings and Golden Gate University in their respective environmental justice law clinics. What was happening was this is the neighborhood that is to this day, to this day, it is zoned for industrial, agricultural, and residential uses, no discrimination. It's not the factories are over here and 
the farmland is over here and the houses are in this island in the middle. No, you actually have houses chock-a-block with the sewage plant, with the shipyard, with the fat rendering plant, with the chicken abattoir. We're all together. And one of the things that the city was looking to do was to add an additional power plant, power generation plant to our neighborhood, burning natural gas. This was going to be the fourth power plant situated in our district, in the Southeast District, District 10 of the city. And the residents said enough is enough. If the city is growing so fast and needs more power plants, other people can assume that burden. We already have enough. Of course, nobody was listening, as always. But we caught the ear of these two law schools and their environmental justice clinics. And we organized and they organized and we formed SAGE. SAGE is the Southeast Alliance for Environmental Justice and proceeded to do a ground truthing of all of the toxic sites in the city. What was fascinating about that is they found over 300 sites that should be classified as either brownfields or Superfund. They found several hundred uh, tanks that were buried in the neighborhood that were leaking contamination into the soil. We have the highest water table in the city. So anything that's in the soil is going to end up in the water and in the air. It just, it just is. And that collaboration led us to continue on finding reliable, deeply committed to the community academic partners to work with to help us in advocating on our own behalf and along with them. And so we continued our relationship with Golden Gate University. They are currently, um, have historically for us, the advocates and are currently with other allied nonprofits doing legal work in defense of and on, on behalf of the Hunters Point Shipyard, as well as We call it Muni. It is actually our municipal transit authority and the inequitable ways that the bus system treats our neighborhood. And specifically, you've already heard from the revered Daniel Hirsch, the professor out of UC Santa Cruz, who has been doing this kind of work around nuclear programs in in, across the country and specifically the West Coast and in the Pacific for years and really strongly advocating on behalf of communities such as ours. So a couple of examples of what you don't want to do um, and, and take heart. It's easy to fall into these things. My number two at my organization calls UCSF, um, their IRB, Uh, the grand colonizers. They're very imperialistic. It is kind of not even the researcher's fault um, when the entire system and institution is set up and geared towards this kind of bad faith. So number one, you have UC Berkeley's air monitoring projects. They have several of them. 
And I want to stress that Tim hit on exactly the framework that is embedded in environmental justice. Environmental justice research and relationships and work and partnerships and collaboration should be transformational and not transactional. How does the work actually benefit the community long-term? And I don't mean immediate and I don't mean monetarily. What does that community look like as a result of whatever you are trying to partner with us on? Is the community fundamentally and measurably better off in ways that last generations and not a month? So the UC Berkeley Air monitoring project, one of the reasons I call this particular um, work bad faith is initially and still the institution refuses to share or train communities in the technology that they're using to measure air quality and the technology they're using, meaning the algorithms to analyze the data. They refuse to share credit and data ownership with the community. The relationship was actually initiated by um, the Bay Area Air Quality Management District and UC Berkeley, and it was funded without the community's knowledge or input. And then the institution showed up and said, this is what we're going to do, and you're going to be our partners and you have no say in this because we've already written it with you, whether or not you want to do that. That's bad. Don't, don't, don't ever do that. The, the second example is something that really for Dr. Rhodes illustrated, and I think for, for Anne-Marie Charlesworth, really illustrated what the community was dealing with, finally. Um, in that, and, and Dr. Hirsch and I had been explaining this. So there was a review of Hunter's Point. The parameters for the review were put together by the mayor's office. Uh, they forced UCSF to sign on to this particular process. I don't, I don't even know what to call it, a dog and pony show. I wouldn't call it a process. I wouldn't call it a review. It was a dog and pony show. Uh, the final report is called the Committee to Review Hunter's Point Radiation Testing Protocols. And this took place 2019 to 2020. In terms of engagement and collaboration with the community, they held one listening session with the community in which the community was not to provide significant interactions, was not to provide any recommendations, was not to provide any concerns or directions on what they think needed to be reviewed. And one of the stipulations of this review committee's protocols was that they were not allowed to declare whether or not the site was safe to live in. All the community wanted to know if the place was safe. This was put together to quell the concerns of the community. And the one thing we needed, they were specifically banned from doing. 
So I, I want to always give examples. I never want to start with problems without concluding with solutions. Here are what I recommend for best collaboration practices going forward. And most communities have these demands going forward as well. We're really evolving. We have developed a lot of sophistication around these issues. We didn't initially have scientists in the community. A lot of us, including myself, went back to school and developed that knowledge and those skills and those partnerships. So here are our recommendations, both for communities and for academic institutions looking to collaborate with communities such as mine and Monica's. Um, number one, community needs to be part of the project from the very beginning. If you are plotting out, if you are scoping funding sources, if you are writing proposals, if you are writing plans, community needs to be part of that discussion and not just part of that, that discussion. Community needs to be in the lead or co-lead right from the very beginning. As Kim implied, there are a lot of things that community knows that academia does not know that can really um, lead to the success of a project. And more importantly, the nuances that community can bring and the potential pitfalls can really enhance the results of a project. That being said, before you even start, all parties need to be extremely clear, extremely clear on everybody's roles. That needs to happen as soon as you walk in the room before you even start talking. Number three, you always, always, always have to have a conflict resolution process in place um, before you get started. And you have to agree that there are certain points, inflection points, that will allow for an off-ramp of the project. If it looks like the project is going somewhere that is gonna be really uncomfortable either for community or academia, there needs to be a way to say, okay, maybe we need to pull back and conclude this without damaging the relationships that you have built. Because it's by the time we get ready to collaborate, there has been, as Kim has implied, an awful lot of relationship building, um, and you don't want to damage that. And that's all I have to say about that. Next slide. Thank you guys very much, and I look forward to taking your questions at the end of Monica's presentation. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. <clears throat> I really appreciate having just those very clear, very grounded, and very uncompromising principles for what community research looks like. Um, I'm going to shift, so I want to give Monica all the time that we have, um, because Monica Lewis-Patrick is the person who taught me everything that I know about community-led research. Um, to me, she needs no introduction, um, because she is legendary in um, the Detroit social justice, environmental justice, and um, water work movement. She is president and CEO of We the People of Detroit. Um, she is an educator, entrepreneur, and human rights advocate. And along with the other four founders of We the People of Detroit, 
Um, she placed the organization at the forefront of the water justice struggle in Michigan, linking Detroit to Flint to the PFAS contamination battles in Oscoda, um, and also linking those struggles to water insecurity across the country and across the world. She currently serves as a member of several organizations, boards, committees dedicated to the advancement of water equity, including the National Water Affordability Table, the Freshwater Future, um, and All About Water Committee, Policy Link, the Michigan Water Unity Table, um, and the Healing Our Waters Equity Advocacy and Action Committee. In 2015, she was named to the World Water Justice Council and in 2019 was appointed to the International Joint Commission Great Lakes Water Quality Advisory Board and received an appointment, I believe last year, to the Michigan Advisory Council on Environmental Justice by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Um, without further ado, um, I'm going to pull up slides and hand it over to you, Monica. Thanks so much, Nadia. Uh, I just can't say enough about Dr. Nadia Gaber. Uh, much of our work at We the People of Detroit has been definitely co-led by her, uh, not only her scholarship, but her integrity and her intentionality in terms of making sure that she's showing up in a way that is centering community and those that are most impacted. Uh, just so honored and humbled uh, to be here today with UCSF and the Osher Mini Medical School on Environmental Justice and Human Health. Uh, my gratitude and just humility of being able to be on the same panel with Dr. Dan Hersher, with Dr. Kim Rhodes and the exceptional Michelle Pierce, uh, definitely considered a pinch me moment. Uh, but as we talk about the work that we do at We the People of Detroit and Nadia explained, uh, I do this work in collaboration with four other amazing women and each of those women in their own right are an institution builder. Uh, you have Mama Chris Gif Griffith, who's 90 years old and was a part of the, establishing the first methadone clinic here in the city of Detroit. You have Professor Aurora Harris, who has worked uh, for decades to advance uh, education and especially for those children with special needs. You have Cecily McClellan, who leads and is the director of Waterworks, but also was instrumental in designing a very effective program uh, within the city of Detroit to provide water relief uh, back in the, the early uh, 2000s. But what we've seen is seen that program dismantled. And then we also have the amazing leadership of Deborah Taylor. Can't say enough about Deborah Taylor because she actually is the backbone in terms of ensuring that our research is well-funded. And so uh, many of the things that you've already heard, I hope that I can tie into the research and the work we do at We the People of Detroit. First, I would say that we found ourselves as some mad as hell black women uh, who were deeply disturbed by the fact that we were seeing austerity play out in our community uh, in a way that was actually uh, commandeering public dollars through public education. And so we didn't know each other 12 years ago. We showed up every day for five weeks uh, appealing to our public uh, city council uh, to make sure that our children had a pathway to uh, public education. And then what we saw happen after that five weeks, we recognized very quickly because many of us worked in different uh, sectors of government. We saw that this austerity was prepared to play out in terms of the rating of pension funds, uh, the seizing of public assets, and it sent us into another gear. So we didn't plan on being a nonprofit. We just planned on working together to be able to solve some of the problems in our community. Uh, but when we uh, began to work on water, that really shifted the paradigm uh, in terms of where the organization was then 12 years ago and where we are today. 
So the Community Research Collective was birthed in 2015 out of work where we were working with Dr. Gabriel, we were working with Professor Emily Kudel, who is an architect and a, a world-class designer. Uh, we were also finding ourselves asking questions at multiple tables, uh, trying to connect the dots as to why uh, it seemed to be all right that they could shut off over 181,000 households from access to water in one of the blackest cities in America. And it was okay with everyone for that to happen, while at the same time, that very community was providing water to about 40% of the population of an entire state. And so one of the questions that came up, we went to a young man by the name of Alex Plum, and we were talking to him about what it was that we could possibly do to take the work that we were doing on digitizing and mapping water shutoffs in the city of Detroit. Was there any kind of pathway where we could take that data and lay over top of that data what he was seeing in the ER? Because Henry Ford Health Systems is one of the largest healthcare providers in the state of Michigan. Well, from that research, one of those questions that we began to look at is we were looking at what was happening in Detroit, but we also had to look at what was happening across the nation. Well, in 2017, there was research that was done by Dr. Elizabeth Mack at Michigan State University, where she had discovered that it wasn't just Detroit, it wasn't just those black folks that wouldn't pay their bills, that there was actually an issue across the country where we were seeing a rising uh, tidal wave in the cost of water. What she had exposed is that uh, in the year of 2017, that we were fastly on pace by the year 2022 to see 35.6% of the nation unable to afford their water. And looking at this, some of the things that we had to look at during COVID, because what we found is that uh, we were still having to convince our government at a late local and state level that there had to be a correlation between the upticks that we were seeing in Detroit and in Michigan, uh, and really in other parts of the nation with the inability to wash your hands and flush your toilet. Uh, as I stated in Detroit, what we know is that when you can't wash your hands and flush your toilet, uh, before there was the pandemic of COVID-19, we were already sitting in an epidemic of hepatitis A. According to research that was done in 2016, Detroit sits in southeastern Michigan, and at that time, it was recorded as having the largest uh, recorded cases of hepatitis, uh, largest cases of hepatitis A in the country that had ever been documented in American history. Uh, but no one was still even willing in 2016 to connect the dots to water shutoffs and the fact that this may be exacerbating uh, the, the public health uh, disparities that we were seeing and the, the skin rashes, the diseases, the respiratory issues. But it wasn't until COVID-19. And with COVID-19, what we were able to, dis, uh, to demonstrate is that not only was water shutoffs a critical part of being able to maintain uh, good public health and the ability to wash one's hands and properly sanitize. But we also had to demonstrate that there was a racial disparity playing out in terms of who could wash their hands and who could not. And so part of the maps that you see displayed here are maps that uh, not only display where water shutoffs have occurred in the city of Detroit uh, since 2010, but it, you're also looking at where a lot of gentrification has occurred and where dollars have been redirected to downtown Detroit. 
And so some of the mapping we do not only maps what's happening in terms of the disparities related to water, but we've also done mapping around education, around land, uh, to make sure that people are getting a full multi-layered perspective around how all of these impacts uh, at a cumulative level are harming our communities. And what this demonstrates on two levels is not only uh, what has happened most recently, uh, but also being able to tie bar to what's happened in Flint. When you look at the water infrastructure for the city of Detroit, I have to just say this. As I stated before, we provide water to 40% of the state of Michigan. About 2.3 million Michiganders get their water from a water infrastructure that the residents of Detroit have been legislated by the state to build out to the entire region. But the legacy of that debt rests on the backs of Detroiters. If you look at the top of the T, that T goes all the way up to the city of Flint. Uh, that uh, infrastructure that you see around the turquoise area, that represents those 125 municipalities and townships. And then we're also subsidizing to the tune of an 83% to 17% split with the suburbs to actually subsidize their uh, wastewater infrastructure. So 10% of the overall budget for the city of Detroit goes to subsidize the suburbs, while at the same time, they're telling you that in any minute, Detroit may go bankrupt again. This one here was important to lay out the historical uh, um, legacy of debt, and then also the legislation that went along with housing policies. And so what we saw is that you saw in World War II is we were seeing housing policies that were supportive of the GI Bill. And you were also seeing uh, a movement around uh, black folks and Jews being able to move into particular neighborhoods. You also saw white flight leaving the city of Detroit. And so what we wanted to map is uh, not only that we saw people leaving the city of Detroit to move out to the suburbs, we were also at the same time being uh, systematically forced by the state of Michigan to build that infrastructure out to them. But then there were policies on the books that said, you can only sell water for the cost of being able uh, to uh, purchase the infrastructure and then to process it to the customer. But then what we found out through our research, and this was uh, magically uh, presented by Dr. Um, by Professor Emily Koodle, is that we were able to demonstrate that at the residential, uh, at the local level, each municipality is taking uh, the rate that we're providing, which is wholesale, and marking it up anywhere from a, a hundred to a thousand percent, and then blaming that markup on Detroit. So that racial divide is making it very difficult to be able to even move policies that are not only good for public health in Detroit, they're good for public health of the infrastructure, they're good for public health of the region, they're good for public health of the state. This one was critical because I know that many of you maybe from Flint have heard about emergency management. And emergency management is basically the ability to set aside uh, elected officials that have gone through the democratic process. Uh, they're able to carve up union contracts, able to privatize public assets. I, I mean, uh, there is nothing more egregious and more uh, anti-democratic than emergency management. But they were able to use this whole uh, basically racist narrative that somehow Detroiters got up one day and stopped paying their bills when folks really don't understand how water infrastructure has been defunded over the last 50 years. 
when you know the facts, uh, part of that fact is that up until 1977, uh, the U.S. government was contributing anywhere from 67 to 69 percent of the dollars that were invested in upgrades and maintaining our infrastructure. Now they're spending anywhere from three to nine percent uh, toward that infrastructure. So when you have those kind of gaping holes, what has happened is those utilities have shifted that water burden to the individual ratepayer. Well, when you understand that salaries have not kept pace with the fact that water rates have gone up in places like Detroit over 438% in the last 20 years. Uh, right up the street from us in Flint, we were seeing water rates right now are at $250 a month, and they were on pace right before COVID to see water rates actually double to $500 and upwards per month. Uh, in 45 minutes south of here in Toledo, water rates have doubled there. And in Chicago, three and a half hours from here, we've seen water rates triple in the last eight years. Uh, right before we went into COVID as well, on a national scale, we were looking at about 15 million Americans struggling with the inability to keep pace with unaffordable water rates. This one here was critical to just show uh, the very targeted racist uh, decision making that was baked into how the bankruptcy was used against the residents of Detroit. So you not only saw a loss in pensions, uh, almost to the tune of about 22% of pensions were taken, uh, you saw 50% of health care uh, taken, but you saw across the state that it was racially applied that 53% of the African American population uh, was under some form of this austerity. Now we only make up 14%, but we were 53% of being uh, not under representative government, that we were being represented by a dictator and a person that was appointed by Governor Snyder. And of course his interests uh, were definitely not in the interests of those persons that needed uh, his help the most. And then what we also saw him do is redirect, uh, redirect uh, some of that information in a way that uh, allowed the governance structure to be redirected to the advantage of the suburbs. So now Detroit only has two representatives on a body that it used to have at least the majority representation of four. And do you think that those decisions are going to be made in the best interest of Detroit? We haven't seen that be the case. Uh, and then, of course, Flint played a significant role in shifting uh, that power because they were able to use moving Flint off of the Detroit water system as justification for Detroit being insolvent. This one here is critical because, as I stated, this just demonstrates the relationship uh, that we had to build with Henry Ford Health Systems to even get access to health uh, uh, emergency room data. And of course, they uh, did an excellent job of at least making an attempt to expose that there was a direct, uh, an indirect correlation between the shutting off wa of water and waterborne illnesses. Uh, we have continued to lift this research. And one of the things that we demonstrated is that even if you live on a block and your water is on, but your neighbor's water is off, it increases the probability of you being exposed to some level of uh, water-related illness. And this was critical because what was happening to the activists at this time is that there had been a media blackout, and this information is documented in PEN America by Martina Guzman, that that media blackout had played a significant role in actually ex uh, perpetuating this narrative of failed Black leadership to make it all right to do some of the uh, anti-democratic things that were done in Detroit and across Michigan. 
this here was just another uh, map that Emily Kulu and, uh, designed and uh, she and Nadia sort of looked at as a way to demonstrate visually uh, not only what was happening with water shutoffs, but laying over top of that what was happening with COVID-19 as related uh, to not only children, but those persons 65 and older. And what we found is there was some correlations in those neighborhoods where we had uh, a large uh, number of elderly persons 65 and older, uh, where there had been water shutoffs and where there had been a significant number of COVID-19 cases. This here is just another uh, map that drills down into that data. Uh, and then Emily did an amazing job of making sure that we not only were crossing it in terms of the data that we had for where nursing homes were, but then even drilling down even further in terms of the percentages of what those, uh, those cases looked like, uh, not only in the nursing homes, but outside the nursing homes. This is a study that was done by George Gaines and Dr. Gaines is actually 90 years old. Uh, he was a, a deputy director of our health uh, department in the city of Detroit before it was dismantled through uh, emergency management. And his research demonstrated that there had been a significant uptick in waterborne uh, diseases and contamination in Detroit. But because there was a blackout, not only in media, but in government, uh, you had uh, the justification for not sharing some of this data and not releasing it and not covering it was the fact that the, uh, the uh, the health department had been underfunded and deconstructed to some degree. So thank God we had that kind of institutional knowledge in the community that could bring forth this kind of expertise to the public. This here is a project that Nadia really uh, made a difference in our community with, and it was the CASPER, uh, where basically we were able to use a toolkit uh, from the CDC that allowed us to map uh, over 700 households and really be able to do a door-to-door -door survey uh, that not only uh, garnered information in terms of how people were living without water, how long they were living without water, what those disparities looked like, uh, but then we were able to respond in the moment. Uh, we were able to either provide emergency water relief, uh, actually get on the phone and begin to advocate on their behalf with the water department for restoration. Uh, and so this project has really been uh, foundational for a lot of the research that we have built upon over the last, uh, I would say, six and a half years. This is just another uh, of the Casper, of course. Uh, this is some of the, the data that came forward, uh, also correlated with what we were hearing from the Authority Health here in the city of Detroit. Uh, they, it was very successful in helping them uh, actually move some proposals uh, to advocate for infants and for seniors uh, to be able to be protected with a, a moratorium on water shutoffs. Of course, this is more data led by Nadia. Uh, this is one of the food pantries that we were able to correlate a survey with and able to actually interview about 100 uh, heads of households uh, that were already struggling with food and then finding out that they too were also struggling with water. Uh, and then that led to research uh, that was led by Dr. Gabriel again on the psychosocial impacts of water shutoffs. And what we found is that not only were people very fearful of uh, not having water, but also fearful of the fact that in the state of Michigan, there is a policy on the books that if you don't have running water for 72 hours, you're in imminent danger of having your children taken. And we did know of cases that where children had been taken and that fear is still real, even to this day, even with a moratorium. 
And of course, this is just another chart that demonstrates uh, that level of stress and that level of fear. And again, we have steps that we would love for folks to take. There is research that came out just this week from Cornell University that supports our position that there needs to be an extension on the moratorium on water shutoffs to ensure uh, that uh, those persons at the local and state levels can get the proper resources to those communities that need uh, relief and need uh, funding. And then the second piece that I would say is would I would encourage all of you to go to the We the People of Detroit website and sign the pledge to, to support water affordability. Uh, we must have it and we must have it now. Uh, based on everything that I know, tomorrow for many states, uh, there will be no moratorium for water relief and water protection from shutoffs. And we need all hands on deck. Uh, I need you to call anybody that is anybody and ask them to make sure that they're advocating at the federal and the state and local levels to ensure that everyone has access to clean, safe and affordable water. As I was talking to you tonight, I got a memo from the Director of Health here in the city of Detroit that they have extended an advisory because once again, we are seeing COVID cases tick up. Uh, so we need everyone's help and water is a human right. Uh, I will not make any excuse for that. And it is one that we will fight for. And so in the words of the Honorable Count, uh, uh, Coleman Alexander Young, when you find a good fight, get in it. And the fight for water is a fight worth uh, getting in. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you so much. Um, this, I think, just drives home how um, crucial it is to be community-led and community-driven in these questions. Because as everyone has talked about, um, there is so much expertise, experience, um, relationship building and understanding of things that um, are impacting community members and people's daily lives that never get translated into the kinds of statistics, the kinds of research, the kinds of papers that get published. And this is really at the leading edge, I think, of rethinking what community academic partnerships look like um, and how to do the kind of research that responds to the urgent needs. And of course, COVID, um, you know, we couldn't not kind of talk about that today because it has um, ripped through our communities very disproportionately and required activating this kind of deep knowledge um, into uh, ethical, trustworthy partnerships. And, um, you know, the other thing that I, you know, want to point out and take away is how much burden is placed on communities to be able to do this research. The Detroit context is extreme, I think, in the absence of a funded public health agency that was able to do research. And we talked about that with Dr. El-Sayed um, a few weeks ago. But we see the same thing in the Baby Hunters Point neighborhood, that there is just Maybe they give you documents, but they give you a flood of information, almost to the extent of misinformation. And so um, I think there's an endless amount to say here. I'm so grateful to everyone um, for coming and speaking with us, for um, wrapping up this session of mini medical school panels um, with some really challenging, but also inspiring um, presentations on how to better partner um, with our community partners and how to actually advance environmental justice um, in real time. I love the idea of the ground truth and um, bringing the ground truth into the academic space. 
So um, the urgency is all around us. If you've listened um, to these sessions and all the major issues we've covered from climate-fueled war and migration, the reproductive effects of pollution, the endemic use of pesticides in our food, disproportionate impacts of COVID on communities of color, water insecurity across the nation, environmental contamination in the hearts of our cities, um, affecting our children, affecting where people live, all these major challenges in health politics and policy. If you've listen to that with a sense that things are futile. I hope that you really listened tonight and um, can take away some grounded and clear um, ways of engaging in research that does um, build change in ways that you perhaps can't anticipate, um, but that also um, I think include the important element that Dr. Rhodes sp spoke to, which is that you, you yourself become transformed. So I know that we went a bit over tonight. Thank you, there was just too much um, to learn. And I'm going to um, hand it back to Anne-Marie to close us out and just want to give one more big thank you to everyone, um, especially Monica for joining so late on the East Coast. Thank you so much. Um, this was an, wow. This, this was like, a, this was just a really incredible um, last session. And um, what I, I wish we had more time and clearly we ran over and I feel like there's probably still more we could discuss. Um, but, but I'd like to suggest that we think of this as the beginning of a conversation, um, hopefully stimulating more conversations everywhere about what all of you, our incredible um, guests, our speakers shared and what our people who tuned in and joined us tonight um, took away and what their experiences are. So I'd like to encourage um, continued dialogue. Um, please reach out to me, to any of the co-chairs. Um, if you'd like to connect, we'd be happy to facilitate that. And again, I just wanna thank all of our presenters and um, you, the, our guests, our participants um, for joining and also Osher for um, supporting this event. Uh, it's been an incredible experience and we, I feel like it's gonna to lead to, um, I don't think I speak for myself. I think incredible things are gonna happen because of it. So thank you for the opportunity. And to all of you, um, good night. And uh, we look forward to meeting you again. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.